One other exciting ministry update was that last Sunday evening, uh, we had our first uh, gathering for Rooted, which is a 10-week discipleship journey to see people's lives change and transform. And I'm encouraged to share with you this morning that 49 people, which will make up three groups, came last Sunday. Isn't that great? And uh, I just want to encourage all of you who came to come back tonight, right? Uh, the Jarborough group is meeting at 4 at Joe's house, and then there's two groups that meet here on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m., and uh, we'd be glad to be on that journey together. But would you pray for these individuals over these 10 weeks? Because it really is a transformational time in doing that which we've been speaking about, which is becoming a more devoted follower of Jesus Christ and what that means, even if some individuals are seeking God out and haven't even come into a personal relationship of knowing God yet. One of the first things that happens at Rooted is uh, when I lead the group uh, is for me to share my faith story. We actually do that over the course of uh, the weeks is just go around the circle and a couple each week maybe share uh, three to five minutes about their faith journey no matter where they're at, uh, whether they've become a follower of Christ or not or just maybe seeking God out, or maybe their wife drug them to the, the group, I don't know. But uh, we share together just briefly our story. And I was reminded again with sharing my story last week, how at an early age, um, I committed my life to be a Jesus follower, but I really didn't fully know all that I was into. My family would uh, gather sometimes for family devotions. My father and my mother, they would encourage us to you know, have a God interest and take us to church. But uh, sometimes we'd gather in the living room and they would change the channel on us and we would end up watching Billy Graham. And uh, I remember one time when I was watching Billy Graham as a young child, and I'll just be honest with you, I got scared because he was talking about the end times. And when Jesus Christ comes again, or the rapture, as they refer to it sometimes, that we're caught up, those who are followers of Jesus. And I could just envision myself coming down from upstairs uh, during a weekday, uh, maybe getting ready for school or to have breakfast, and I would come downstairs and the whole family would be gone, except for me. I would be left behind. And uh, some of you know that that's a series of books that are written on that kind of thing. But I was scared into, one sense, becoming a Jesus follower. I remember going up to my room that evening watching Billy Graham and Just As I Am was spoken, and I prayed. I was probably eight years old, somewhere around there. Jesus, come into my life. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with my family. And it's interesting because all of us, when we can articulate some of our faith journey, the initial instance when we started to have a God interest, or maybe when we crossed the line of faith, had to do probably more with you than with God. I was uh, interested in uh, going to heaven, and they didn't talk too much about it, but I knew there was this other place to go, and I didn't want to go there, right? And so I was in it for what I wanted out of it. And I was what you would call a Jesus consumer. Now, a Jesus consumer is not necessarily wrong. In fact, maybe you're in that boat today. You're, you're in church like, you know, I thought I'd come to church, check some things out, figure out what God maybe had in my life. Things aren't going that great. Maybe the God thing might help. Well, there's nothing wrong necessarily with being a Jesus consumer, but as we've been sharing on these different narratives about the life of Jesus and the people that were around him and the people that started following him and his big picture plan for us, 
you need to know this, that God wants to move you away from being a Jesus consumer to being something more, something more than what's in it for me. You know, I, I need to get this figured out. And your, your focus is rather myopic sometimes, right? In and of itself. And Jesus, though he meets his followers initially at that level, and you just need to know this, all the followers in the, Old, um, in the New Testament with Jesus started out this way. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone to be their spiritual leader. And so they started out as consumers, all right? And so there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, all the people that really probably have ever come to God at some level have come through that kind of initial initiative. In fact, we um, find uh, the stories that we unpack. One of those had to do with the story of Peter a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember looking at that? And that story was in Mark 8.33 when Jesus started talking about that he was going to go and die and those kinds of things. And Peter just couldn't get into that. And it says this in eight, Mark 8, 33, But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, after Peter took him aside, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. We talked about that. Whoa, that's a pretty big deal to come at Peter so strongly with that. But why did he say that to Peter? He said, Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What's that indicative of? A Jesus consumer. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? And Jesus knew that he had to be obedient to the Father's will to bring about an atonement through the cross, and they didn't understand any of that, of course. But Jesus understood he had to be obedient to provide a means for salvation for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Peter didn't want to have anything to do with it because Peter, like the other disciples, was a consumer. And as a consumer, he was not going to allow something to happen to Jesus that would reflect poorly upon his life or what he wanted to do. In fact, there's another place where Jesus begins to talk about uh, what it means for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. And so it's probably important to understand what Jesus says about that, especially if you want to be a rich person. What did he talk about with that? But Jesus talked about the difficulty of how hard it was for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. And it's not just maybe those who want to be rich. The fact of the matter is we are all rich. If you make over 45000 a year, you are in the top 5% of the wage earners around the world. Did you know that? And none of you clap for that. Why? Because you don't feel rich, right? But... Jesus knew that the attractions of the world, that which we pursue 24-7, 365, that we get consumed with ourselves. And so he was speaking to them about what it meant for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. And, and Peter started thinking through this again, and he's going like, well, man, I, I remember, and we talked about it, you know, I remember when I left the family business. And Jesus said, come follow me. And I told my dad, hey, I'm going to go uh, follow this uh, rabbi. See you later. Good luck. Tell mom, I said, you know, take care. He remembered all that he left in order to become a follower of Jesus. And so you find these words in Matthew 19, 27. He says, Jesus, Jesus, don't you understand? I mean, look at us. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be? For us. Where's his mindset? His mindset is on consumerism. What's in it 
for me? What's in it for me? You know, the night that Jesus was arrested and they uh, uh, didn't quite know all that was going on, they realized that there was nothing to be gained by hanging around and what was going on at that moment. And it says in Matthew 26, it says, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. You know what they did? They unfollowed. You ever unfollowed anybody on social media? Come on, let's be honest now, right? There's a few people that I'm, I'm glad it says unfollow for 30 days, and so if I'm in a bad place, I'm like, I'm tired of hearing that theological perspective. I understand what they're saying, but I don't like that angle, and that just bothered me a little bit because it got my mind thinking, I'm like, uh, unfollow. 30 days comes back, and hopefully I'm a little bit nicer in my mood, right? Some of you going like, does the pastor unfollow me? <laughs> I, I don't know that. I really don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. I don't comment a lot, but if you want to follow me, you can. I don't ever ask anybody to follow me. You have to ask me. Anyway, just a little side note there, but I will try to not unfollow if we become Facebook friends. <laughs> Social media, hasn't it changed our world so much? But think about it during Jesus' day. They had a choice. And when he was arrested, they deserted him. They left. Unfollow. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you read the end of all the story, they come back. They come back because they began to understand what it really meant to follow Jesus. And they didn't understand his big kingdom picture and what he was doing. And in fact, they so passionately came back that the story unfolds that those disciples went forward and they lived a life of sacrifice, even to the point of death. They laid down their life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, not because of the teachings of Jesus, but because they were an eyewitness to something. And that was the resurrection of Jesus, which we're preparing for this month as we look forward to celebrating Easter. They unfollowed, but they came back strong, passionate followers. Something happened within them. All of them except one. One. And some of you know his name. Judas Iscariot. Judas was on a journey with Jesus. It was the same kind of journey as the other disciples had with Jesus and following him, but as he started to put the things together, he really became very unsettled and disturbed when he was watching Jesus. He had the same aspirations that the other followers of Jesus had. They wanted Jesus to become the Messiah. And for them, in their Jewish hearts and minds, the culture they came from, all the things that they studied historically, the Messiah would take upon a kingly role in their culture. And Judas kept waiting for Jesus to discard the teacher rabbi hat and put on the crown and become king. They were under Roman oppression in Israel at that time. The Jewish, the Hebrew people were. So they longed for this Messiah to come and change and transform the culture, liberate and free them. And for them, as followers, maybe the Messiah for them, you know, to some, get some kudos too and to be able to get some bennies out of it. And, hey, look at us. We're followers of the Messiah. 
So these followers that were tracking with Jesus, all the disciples and the other contingency of women and children maybe, is, is that they were looking for Jesus to become the Messiah. But Judas had an extra hard time with this because as he started to put things together, he was really bothered by Jesus. Jesus was slow. Jesus was passive. Jesus wasn't acting quickly on what they thought was going to happen with this Messiah. And Jesus, Jesus didn't hate the Romans like they hated the Romans. Why, Jesus, why, why don't you, you know, preach about that or how terrible the, the politics are of the day? And Judas like, man, I don't think he's getting this. It wasn't just Peter that couldn't put it together. Judas really had a hard time putting it all together. Why wasn't Jesus organizing them more? Why wasn't he assigning positions? Why wasn't, why wasn't Jesus taking some active initiative with the religious elite of that day, which was the Hebrew Jewish politicians, right? It was like, Jesus, you are publicly rebuking the Pharisees and the chief priests. We know that the Messiah is going to come from that, uh, our ranks and that the religious people are going to hail your coming as the Messiah. And here you are out there slamming them in public circles. Jesus, you can't be doing that. We're a part of a, pro a progressive political party here. Watch what you're saying out there. Watch who you're getting on the wrong side. And Jesus wasn't building a war chest either. Like, we need some resources, and we're going to go after that, because any moment, any moment, Jesus is going to shred the cloak of teacher rabbi and establish himself as the king, as the Messiah, and we're going to be his followers, and he's going to usher in this kingdom like David and Solomon had in the Old Testament, and woo, let's all get at this thing. Jesus, we're baffled, we're confused. And at the forefront of that was the man named Judas Iscariot. Judas assumed that Jesus was just, he was just bidding his time. But he did talk about the coming kingdom. So Judas was still in until something happened. And this story is it's, it's sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back, I suppose, in that culture. That maybe that's related more. It, maybe that's just it's too silly. Maybe they didn't use that, right? But this was it. This was like the last straw. And the story is found in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Now, acknowledging that we're consumers, when we step into this whole idea, and you can follow Jesus no matter what you believe, no matter what your behavior, Jesus has no front-loading of any expectations for you to initially start following him, right? We've talked about that in these weeks. So consider being a follower of Jesus if you've never before. But most likely, you're going to step into that following with a bit of a consumer mind. What's in it for me? What am I getting out of it? And this is where the disciples were wrestling. They were wrestling as consumers with it. Now, in this story, we don't know Simon the leper. I mean, uh, why was he called that? Was maybe Zacchaeus? Was he... 
he had leprosy before, which was a very bad skin disease. Maybe he had leprosy in the moment. Maybe it was like, hey, we don't care. You know, he's got COVID. You know, we're just going to go. Big deal. What happens? What happens? Right? It was that, you know, stepping back, maybe away from him. But he went to this home of Simon Leopard, and there was a woman who came with this uh, big jar of expensive perfume, like maybe a year's worth of expensive perfume. And then she poured it on the head of Jesus as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. What a waste! I can't believe you would do something like that. They were indignant. Now, they verbalized it. Why? Why waste all this? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, this is an awkward moment. I'm sure it was a house familiar with relationships there. But it would be like you being invited to someone's house and you're seated and uh, they got a nice spread dinner and they got, you know, nice place settings. And all of a sudden you pick up a silver flatware, a fork, and you go, Really? I can't believe this. We're going to use this expensive silver uh, utensil to put stuff in our mouths? Really? This could have been sold and given to the poor. And in that moment, what? Awkward. Here they are, pouring oil, this woman is. Over the head of Jesus, running down his hair and his body and onto the floor. And the disciples are like, God. What's going on? What's going on? Now, here's the interesting thing. The story here, as it's told in Matthew, says one thing, but we have a little bit more of the story in the Gospel of John. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Can you sort of picture this now? It wasn't that the disciples all got up in arm. It's Judas Iscariot sitting over the side, and he's sitting by, I don't know, Bartholomew. And it's like, Barley, what do you think that's worth? Can you believe that she's doing that? James is on the other side. James, you know, we got, we got to say something about this thing. And so here's Judas Iscariot strumming up the perspective and the discontent. And so that's why in Matthew says the disciples were all. But was it really the disciples? Well, yeah, maybe they got brought into his thinking. But it was Judas Iscariot who was having the hardest time with this idea. And why was he having such a hard time with this idea? Because he had a personal agenda. And his personal agenda was not fitting with the lifestyle and what the actions and circumstances were of Jesus that were happening in that moment. And it sort of broke the camel's back. Jesus, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. And he used to help himself to what was put in it. Oh, Judas Iscariot, masquerading as a 
follower of Jesus, but yet he was really a consumer. What's in it for me? Can you picture when they were trying to decide who was going to keep track of the money bag during that day with those disciples, right? Because people would want to bless them and give money and, and give them provisions for what the ministry was that Jesus was starting out with. You know, it's like, well, here's Matthew. No, not Matthew. We know what he did prior to come following, and we can't trust him, right? Or here's Thomas, like, nah. Thomas just doesn't seem to be able to add things together very well. So Judas spoke up and he said what? He says, I'll keep track of the money. Well, sure, you keep track of the money, Judas. But why did he want to keep track of the money? He wanted to keep track of the money so he could dip his hand into it every now and then and sort of help himself. So he sees this woman pour this perfume and he's like irate. Like, that's a year's worth of salary. That could have gone in our money bag, of which I could have helped myself a little bit to it. Or maybe it built up the war chest for when Jesus comes out of hiding as the teacher rabbi and becomes the king, right? Oh, this is just terrible. So John gives us a little bit of that backstory. But back to Matthew, aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why? Why are you bothering this woman? She has done something beautiful for me the poor you will always have with you but you will not always have me when she poured this perfume on my body she did it to prepare me for burial which peter's probably doing what up there you go again. You're talking about death and dying and burial. You can't be doing this, Jesus. Jesus was trying to unpack a whole different storyline of what it would mean to be the Messiah. And his disciples were wrestling with it. Why? Because they were Jesus' Messiah consumers. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How did Jesus know that? The world? Jesus, you didn't even travel more than 70 miles from where you're born. And how do you know about the world? Here we are, 2,000 years later, doing what? Talking about this woman who lavishly gave worship and praise to Jesus with the perfume. Then, it's important, right after this story, then, then what? Well, then, this is the very next thing that came about. The indignation, the, the frustration, uh, all that was sort of churning and building within Judas. Then, the next thing he did, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Now, part of me thought maybe I should bump this story out a couple weeks as we got closer to Easter. The story of the betrayal, the story of the crucifixion, setting up for Easter. But sometimes, and it was definitely true last year during our COVID journey, I feel like Easter gets stolen from us. 
And I think it's important to weigh in to the subject matter of the storyline so that we have this whole month to let it start to soak in and build for us. Yeah, it's the season of Lent, but a lot of times you don't track that very well. And oh my goodness, here's, here's Palm Sunday, here's Good Friday, here's Easter, boom, we're good. Now we're heading on to summer. Let's take rightfully this narrative that's been preserved for us. These disciples were wrestling with the me stuff. What they wanted, what they thought was right. And God was trying to unpack before these simple followers of him what really he was about to do, which was transformational. It was an epic story, far bigger than their little micro story of their personal life or the micro story of even the culture and what was happening to the Jewish people in that day. A story that we will declare through all eternity about what Christ did through the Passion Week and the resurrection and thereafter and the transformation of the world and the hope that you and I carry in here today. And if you're looking for hope, I just want to tell you that you're in the right place because you have hope because of what happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But those disciples, those followers at that time, they were wrestling, they were wrestling big time. And Judas Iscariot at the forefront of it, he couldn't figure it out. And so he says, that's it. And he went to the chief priest, these are the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders of the day. And so they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for the opportunity to hand him over. Now I highlight that phrase, hand him over, because you need to take a look at that and realize the absurdity of that that was in his mind. Judas, you remember that time you were scared on the boat because of the weather and Jesus stood up and told the weather to change? You were there when Lazarus, man, he was dead and we showed up and even the relatives said, man, he's been dead a while. Don't roll that stone away, man. It's going to be bad. And then Jesus had a dead man walk out of a tomb. And Judas, you remember when he, when he we healed the blind and the lame? Judas was there for all that, but yet he thought he was in control of this situation and he was going to hand God, he was going to help Jesus over? How deceived he was that he thought he was actually in control because he wasn't. And how many times we think that's true of our own life. We think we got God on our side and he is but we think he ought to do our bidding our way. We have certain things we like. We sort of keep God as the lucky charm in our hip pocket and pull it out, hey God, can you really help on this one? Because it would be great if it came through. This business deal or this relationship or this healing through a surgery. Man, God. And, and we come to God with some of the same self-centered consumerism that Judas Iscariot was carrying. And Judas is actually a lesson for us today. That's a little scary. What are you talking about? Judas, nobody wants to go, you know. Yeah. Let's examine our own heart because in many ways we have some of the same ambition and greed that blinded the early followers of Jesus 
And we think that we can force God's hand, we can force God's hand into something that we want Him to do. Little did, little did Judas know that he was about to be the primary illustration for something all of us need to understand. The primary illustration for a major truth. And this is the major truth for you and I this morning. God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be thwarted. God's hand will not be forced. His will will not be thwarted. And that's exactly what we began to see. As Judas stepped out, and he began this process of betraying Jesus. Now, why did, Jesus do, why did Judas do this? Well, as we mentioned, he had a different kind of perspective of what happened. But in his mind, I mean, why would he go to that length and do that? In his mind, Jesus was slow, he was passive, he wasn't doing the right things to be the kingly person, but he still talked about being a, a person who would bring a kingdom. And so Judas probably thought, to the best of our knowledge, that he would force the hand of Jesus to act. And so he went to the chief priest and the Pharisees and said, I know you can't get at him. He's, he's around everywhere. He'll speak, but you can't go through the crowd and sort of grab Jesus out of the crowd. And then the crowd's all upset because, man, Jesus is feeding them and doing miracles and stuff like that. So, hey, I'm in the inner circle and I know how you can get at him. So here's the deal. This is what's going to happen. I want you to come follow me into this place, and you need to bring the torches. You need to, to bring the, the, the guard of the temple and, and, you know, some police force, and let's go, and I will then place my hands on Jesus and kiss him, and you'll know this is the one that you need to deal with. And once that happens, then... then then Judas most likely thought there was a domino effect of things that were going to happen. Jesus would do what? He would emerge then as saying, okay, hey, listen, I'm not going to let any of this bad stuff happen to me. I am the Messiah. And so Judas thought he would force Jesus' hand to come out of the slow hiding that he was in and establish himself as the Messiah. That's probably what was in Judas's mind in this. And so when he went and and he betrayed Jesus, and he took the silver. He thought he'd get a little bit of money on the side with it, right? He was going to do this deed, and, and then things were going to change. There's going to be this huge pivot of an experience that happened. And so then it did happen. It was during that Passover that Judas slipped out, and... He went to the garden where Jesus was. And he did something that none of us in this room will ever have the chance to do, thank goodness. He was within touching distance of the Messiah, the Son of God, the creator of the universe. And he placed a kiss on him and he betrayed him. And they came and they took him. And then the dominoes started to fall all the way up to the crucifixion. But what was happening there behind that scenes? In Matthew 27, it's recorded this way. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. What? What, what do you think Judas is thinking at this time? He never realized the depth of hatred 
that the religious Jewish people had at that time. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now what? Rome's involved. This was not what I was thinking was going to happen. I was just trying to force his hand, get him to be not a slowpoke, get him to take the kingly reign, and now he's been handed over to the Romans, not the Jewish leadership or the temple guard. This is going to be a problem. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I believe it was rightful remorse. But here's a problem, and some of you have experienced it in your life. Sometimes our actions set circumstances in motion. The train is left, and you can't get it back. You can be forgiven, but the circumstances can't be changed. And that's the place that Judas found himself, and he was deeply grieved in all of it. And he took the 30 pieces back and he said, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. <laughs> what is that to us? <laughs> Judas, you were a pawn. We just used you. That's your responsibility. So Judas, Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went away, and he hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, height of a religious hypocrisy here. It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. Blood money? You just turned Jesus, who was faultless, over to the Romans to be executed. And you're worried about some petty law that you made up for another law, what was made up for another law that's buried in all your documents? Really? So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And that is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. The scriptures, the stories of scriptures, the life of Jesus, all this is not myth, it's not fairy tale, make-believe. Here's one of those subtle examples in scripture that you have to look for that shows that it's a historically accurate kind of document. Everybody that was alive at that day receiving this kind of word and instruction through Matthew, they could go out and look at the field. The field of blood to this day, where foreigners who were in town but died were ended up buried. It happened. Jesus was betrayed by one of his followers named Judas Iscariot. He was turned over to the Romans. He was executed on a cross, crucified. And if there's anyone who knows anything about blood, it's Jesus. Because he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. God's hand, friends, cannot be forced. His will can't be thwarted. And I want you to know that that's actually 
good news for you and me today. He's not going to change his mind because of some myopic or nearsighted win. He is going to stay the course in his sovereign will for your life and my life so that his will will be done because you cannot find any greater pleasure in life than for God's will to be done. God's will to be done in the world. God's will to be done in this nation. God's will to be done in your family. God's will to be done in your personal life. That's what you need to hunger and long for. And your God will not have his hand forced or his will thwarted by the actions or the sins of other people and you come into alignment with him and you will discover how beautiful that will is but (laughs) here's our challenge our challenge is this that's not the way we're wired as sinful self-centered people And so we have to make a change. We have to change from our will to his will. And that's conflict. We talked about it a couple weeks ago with Peter. It's a big conflict to move from my will to thy will. But when you make that move and that transition as a follower, it's an incredible moment. It's an incredible moment, but it's also a very challenging, difficult moment. It'll feel like a moral imperative. I've got to do this. Maybe it's a job decision. Maybe it's a, it's a relationship. I need to let that relationship go. I know, but she's so cute. Maybe it's some other realignment of your life. But you know deep inside, because you've sought to be a follower of Jesus, you come to this conflict moment as surely as someone like Judas did. And you have to decide, are you going to take things in your own hands or are you going to submit yourself to the will of God and what Christ is doing in and through your life? It'll feel like a moral imperative. I just have to do this. Others won't understand it. But you make the decision. You make the decision to stay and to not move or to move and not stay. You make the decision to cut off the relationship, gain another relationship, or just be a single person for a while. You make the decision to be able to, to re-challenge and, or, and redirect your home life, even though you're fearful of what kids may do. You have to make the decision in that moment to align your life with the will of God. It will feel like a death. You'll feel like you're cutting something off. Step into it, because it'll be a defining moment. It'll be a defining moment, and you always look back on it and say, I am so grateful that I said your will and not my will. I am so grateful I moved away from being a Jesus consumer to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Friends, this happens in every one of our lives. Maybe you're there right now, maybe you're not. Maybe you push back against it, I don't know. But I just got to be upfront and honest with you as we talk about being a follower of Jesus. Jesus will move you that direction. And all of his disciples had that challenge. All of them had that challenge. I want what you want more than what I want. That's what you have to get to. I want what you want more than what I want. That's not easy, right? 
Let me give you a little bit of slack today, all right? Thank, thanks, Carrie. It's getting a little heavy in here. Maybe you're not there yet, but could you move to this position? I want to want what you want more than what I want. I want to want it. I, I don't, God. This is where I'm at. I have my preconceived ideas just like Judas did. But I have to defer to you and your will. I'm not there, but I want to want what you want and not what I want. And if I could just challenge you in a simple prayer. Put it in a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, this day I want to want what you want and not what I want. You know, there's so many stories going on in this very room right now. We took time, we'd unpack it, what's happening in your life, what's going on, what are you excited about, what's your highs, what's your lows, those kinds of things. But friends, your story is so small compared to God's big story and what he's doing. You want to participate in that bigger story of what he's doing. You don't want to look back on your life and go, oh, I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had. Judas, his remorse, he couldn't live with it anymore. He says, I'm just going to kill myself. I can't believe what I've done. I didn't see it. Was Judas a real follower of Jesus? Sure, he was a follower, but he could not move to the full following because of his self-centeredness. Don't be a Judas. See that God's got a bigger story going on. And if he's prompting in your heart a moral imperative, something that feels like a death, a defining moment to move from my will to his will, then do it. Step across it. Make that decision. Take that initiative. Surrender that part of your life because you will find yourself enfolded in a much grander worship story. In the worship story of the King of the Kings and the Lord of Lords who is preparing a place for all of us. And during these days... He is changing and transforming us as individuals to be not puppets, but to be co-heirs with him. But you can't be a co-heir with Christ unless you have the attitude and the disposition of Jesus Christ who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm so thankful at the age of eight years old that I committed my life to be a Jesus follower. But I tell you what, and I shared this in the Rooted, it was at the age of 15 that I surrendered a couple of huge areas in my life. And I said, not my will, but your will be done. Life's not always easy. Things don't always go your way, but I know that I'm in the palm of his hands. And I know that Jesus turns and his smile is upon me. And he may pick me up when I sin and I fall, but he says... Come on, follower, Carrie, you're going to be able to make it through this season too because you had a defining moment where you said, it's not what I want, but what you want. So can that be your prayer today? I tell you what Judas would tell you. Judas would say, blessed is the one who chooses to do the will of God rather than attempting to impose one's will on God. As you came in this morning, you were given a communion cup and bread. And I'm going to ask us if you would take out that communion cup symbolizing the bread and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't have one, just raise your hands. I'll walk around and give you one. Just open it. Take the bread and take the cup 
And we are going to close by remembering the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus, on the night that he was what? Betrayed. Betrayed. He took the bread and he took the cup. He took the bread and he took the cup and he gave symbolism to them. Symbolism to them that would last for centuries. Symbolism to them that is strong and rich this very hour. We'll be very rich this week. We'll come together on Good Friday and, and we will share communion together then. But we have this moment on this first Sunday of this month to remember his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. Because you and I would have no hope we can't clean our life up. We can't make all the wrongs right. It's nothing we can do. That's religion. That's what the Jewish people were caught into. We got to do this law. We got to do this act. Or uh, the Messiah's got to act this way. They didn't understand. It wasn't anything they could do. But God Himself did something in coming down in human flesh in the life of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, and Jesus lived a sinless life so that he could be the sacrificial lamb for our sins. And so when we take the bread and we take the cup this morning, we remember what God did for us. And if you've crossed that line of faith and you've become a Jesus follower, even if you're all broken and double-minded and even wayward and, and a consumer, you just start right where you're at in that moment here this morning, you're acknowledging, Jesus, I remember your body that was broken for me and your blood that was shed for me. And I will remember you until you come again or I step across that threshold and I see you face to face. Will you pray with me? And then we'll partake together. Lord Jesus, we so much want to choose your will and not our will but we acknowledge our sinful state of self-centeredness and we repent of our sins afresh and anew and ask for a fresh covering of your forgiveness because when you died on that cross and rose from the grave, you made the provision, the atonement to be at one with you through your broken body and your shed blood then, now, and forevermore. And so, Lord, this morning as we close, we worship you. We thank you. We honor you. And we freshly surrender our lives to you as followers. God's people say,
stand with me? Receive this blessing as you go now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in his church and in your life throughout all generations. And may his blessing abide with you as you go this hour and this week with a heart turned to want to want what Christ wants and not what you want. For his glory and for the sake of those that you're going to minister to this week. God bless. See you back next Sunday.